reading from Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with the power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. First time reader, well done. Well done. Uh, Before we pray, uh, a couple of weeks from today, two weeks from today to be exact, uh, Mother's Day. Want to make sure that you're inviting people to come to the assembly. Unfortunately, uh, Ellen and I are going to be out of town that day. uh, And my mother happens to be in town today. So I'm going to take this opportunity to to gain sympathy for her, having to raise my brothers and I. Uh, My mother was very young when uh, she had us. uh, mother and father uh, living up in North Texas, bringing the three boys into town, into, uh, into life, into this world. And uh, my poor mother, uh, there, was, there was not any softness in our household whatsoever. Uh, she was surrounded by little boy aggression. Uh, just about all of her early years of adult life. And I was the oldest of the three, uh, usually the ringleader. And, uh, <laughs> you know, when you, if, how many of you here are parents of all-boy families? Yeah, so you know what I'm talking about. At the end of the day, there's at least one, somebody's crying. And sometimes it wasn't my brothers and me, sometimes it was my mom. Uh, but most of the time, we, you know, we were, we were just bouncing around the backyard and these kinds of things. And things would get rough because, you know, we're young boys and we're trying to prove that we're men and uh, somebody would end up crying in the middle of the afternoon or the end of the day and mom would have to referee that and uh, one day she came home and she'd been grocery shopping and uh, she pulled out of a paper bag something we had never seen before a Nerf football and you know what a Nerf football is it's a football made out of a sponge right And she tossed it to me, and she said, I'd like to see somebody get hurt with that. (laughs) And what I heard was, I'd like to see somebody get hurt with that. (laughs) And so I'm holding this ball, and my brothers are looking at me, holding this ball. It's a football sponge, a sponge and a football. And I thought, what if I soaked this thing in water? for a week and then put it in the freezer <laughs> yeah but smart boy not only bad boy but smart boy <laughs> genius boy and at, <laughs> at the end of that week I get that football and line my brothers against the fence and I say we're going to learn a new game today it's called William Tell and uh, you know the rest is history we all survived but uh, if my mother is shaking a little bit when you greet her this morning, now you know why. 
Let's pray. Holy Father, kingdoms rage and nations tremble and cities totter and human beings live in days of chaos. But into our hearts you speak assurance and peace, redemption and your presence through the words of your gospel. We are grateful that you are not hidden from us. We are grateful that you are near. And in, and in the nearness, we hear you send us into the kingdoms that rage. We hear you call us into the nations that tremble. And we hear you direct us to cities that totter. And we hear you guide us to humans in the middle of their own chaos with the words of your gospel. We pray, keep us ever near you. Keep us ever near you. And this we pray with all of our heart in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, Cole read for us just a minute ago uh, the, that great prayer right smack dab in the middle of the letter known as Ephesians. I want us to step out for just a minute and I want us to hear the words of a psalm that a man by the name of Asaph wrote, Psalm 73. He writes, and this is toward the end of this great psalm. And for me, if, if uh, you want to know a little bit about me, I, I find these words to be some of the most meaningful words for my own personal life. He writes, when my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet, I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. New American Standard says the nearness of God, that is my good. Now, I, I don't know a lot about Asaph, but Asaph is describing a pretty rough moment or maybe a series of moments in his life. He says, I feel grief and I feel embittered, which means, that's another way of saying, uh, there's a tragedy or there is some kind of a sorrow or a sadness that is threatening to ruin me. He says, I, I was senseless and I was ignorant which is another way of saying, I didn't know what I was doing and I didn't care. And then he says, in, in, some of the, um, in some of the most brutal language of the psalm, he says, I was a brute beast, which meant that I was losing a sense of who I am and I needed rehumanizing. The question is, what is it that brings him out all of that? And we know that probably from the beginning of the psalm there was something relationally going on. We don't know quite exactly everything, but we know that there was something that brought him out of it. What was it? 
Well, one thing we're told is that it was God's counsel, that there was a word of wisdom that came into his life, and it made sense. And in listening to it and embracing and grasping that wisdom, it made all the difference in the world. But it was not that alone. He says, you also hold me by my right hand. The picture is of someone who is struggling, of someone who has grief and sorrow and bitterness to the point that they feel like they're losing their mind, and yet God is holding their hand. When my kiddos were young, I would hold their hand just about everywhere we went. And it didn't really change anything about us. I mean, I loved them when I was with them. I loved them when I was not with them. I loved them when I was walking with them. And I loved them when I was holding their hand. The love never changed. What changed was their experience of it. The same was true the first time I held Ellen's hand. You know how that goes. She's uh, 18 years old. I'm 19 years old, freshman in college. You don't know anything about anything, especially when it comes to girls. But you know you kind of like this one, and you're sitting next to them pretty close, and you allow your hand to kind of come down beside your hip, and uh, you kind of wiggle that pinky to see if it makes contact with hers. And if it does, that's cool if she doesn't pull away. But if she grabs your hand, it tells you something, right? It's a palpable sign the holding of that hand that there's affection and endearment that something special is going on here and Asaph is saying that there are two things that changed him that really rehumanized him from being this brute beast one was he began to understand what God's will was for his life and he began to sense he began to feel the presence of God in his life And both that counsel for his life and that presence in his life led to him saying, God is all I want. And God is all that I need in heaven and on earth. Now going back to this this letter, Paul, by the time that he writes it, uh, this, this prayer, he is finishing up that theological section of the letter to the church in and those churches around Ephesus. And it's, it's not just an ordinary prayer, and that's sort of oxymoronic, right? Because there's no prayer that's, that's ordinary. But, it, but it's a prayer, if you'll notice, that before he utters a single word of this prayer, he tells them and he tells us that he's kneeling before the Father. And in the church in Ephesus, whether you were Hebrew or you were Greek or Roman or Gentile, that would have caught your eye. Because in both the Hebrew world and the Greco-Roman world, prayers whether they were for god to god almighty to to uh to, to yahweh or whether to one of the the the, uh, the gods of the the pantheon of roman and greek gods you did that usually standing up but in this particular case he is kneeling before the father you'll remember that jesus when he talks about um about about the the hypocrite standing before the father i mean this is the way that 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 hebrews usually prayed It was customary for Jewish people to stand in the synagogues. And to kneel to pray meant that something emotional, something on the inside was taking place. You'll remember that at another time in which there was great worship and the presence of God coming into life's people and and the nearness of God was becoming a palpable experience, 
It was in 2 Chronicles chapter 6 where Solomon, after all of the time that was in the resources that were spent in building the temple, all of the people are standing. He kneels down and he begins to pray. And the Shekinah, that is the, the, the frozen lightning-like glory of God comes to bear on the temple. Over in the New Testament in Luke chapter 22, you have Jesus kneeling in the Garden of Gethsemane just hours before he is going to be beaten to a pulp and experience profound injustice and then the next thing you know he's crucified what is it that causes Paul to kneel and to pray this great prayer the hint earlier in the letter in verses 17 18 of the first first chapter Paul emphasizes a couple of things he says you need knowledge and you need wisdom, and you need revelation, and you need enlightenment, and here are some things that you need to know. And he lays out, as we know that he does in the first half of this book, all of the theological things before he gets to the practical things beginning in chapter 4. But the answer to the question, what is it that causes Paul to kneel and to pray this great prayer, is that Paul wants the disciples in Ephesus and the surrounding area to be more than just data Christians. There is a gigantic difference, and Paul knows this. There is a gigantic difference between knowing about God and knowing God. It's a huge difference. He is, he is praying for something to be activated in their life that is more than and goes beyond just the, the command, example, necessary inference way of reading the Bible. And so he says, I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. He is praying that they know God the way that children know the way good fathers behave on earth. And this was mind-blowing to the listeners. The everyday Hebrew Henry would not utter God's name, let alone call him Father. But Paul began to realize as he grew closer and closer through the gospel to God that this is exactly one of the reasons why uh, Jesus taught his, his believers to say, to refer to God as Abba. And the everyday Gentile Jerry tried to manipulate the gods into helping out, but most of the time he was trying to keep those gods at arm's length, trying to stay off of their radar but now as disciples, he's teaching them not to fear the one true God who loves them like a father. And notice this. I mean, why does Paul pray for them to know that Christ dwells in their hearts? Why does he pray for them to know the love of Christ or to be filled with God when he, was, he has already written and taught them about these, ver these, these very things in the previous chapters? Why are you praying that they know it when you already taught them to know it? The answer is that he wants the disciples in Ephesus to have something more than knowledge about God. He wants them to have the experience of these truths. He wants them to have a deep and intimate experience in their relationship with God of all of these truths, these profound and deep truths. He wants them to experience this intimacy. Where like Asaph, they can say, you know what? 
the nearness of God. That's my good. You read the Facebook post this morning. You'll have already seen that this prayer reminds me of something that C.S. Lewis wrote in one of his sermons uh, published in a book called The Weight of Glory. But he writes for us that it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. End of quote. What Paul is praying about is that all of these truths that he's taught them in chapters 1 and chapters 2 and the beginning of chapter 3, that all of these become operative in their hearts. And there are three. We'll go through them quickly. It is to have this, this truth operative in their life, to have the experience of the reality of the proximity of God. He writes in verse 16, I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power, through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now in that verse are two truths. We'll start with the, uh, the one at the end where it says, so that Christ dwell in your hearts through faith. Here's truth number one. God is, is not far off. The Christ desires to be closer to us than the blood in our veins. That is uh, a quoting Dr. York, who was here for the Insight Seminar. He was quoting somebody else. And when I heard that, there was just something that just resonated. That Christ desires to be closer to us than the blood in our veins. Those words, inner being and hearts, are about the same thing. Now, we all know that the word heart, when we read it in the Bible like this, means more than the muscle that pumps blood through our bodies. But the heart in the ancient world was not a place of hallmark sentiments and emotions, but it was a place where there were values and, and there were core truths and there were fundamental principles that we operated by. Uh, going back to C.S. Lewis again, he, he gives a great example of this in his book, The Abolition of Man. He says, uh, in the ancient world, a human being was considered to have three parts. He had a head, a chest where his heart was, and then the viscera, that's where the, the guts are. And he said, the head is full of data. This is the place where the indicative facts are put. You know, red is red, blue is blue, green is green. But it's the heart where the values begin to translate because of values and, and, uh, and, and uh, beliefs and worldview and, and truths, these kinds of things. It was in the heart that what was in the head became an action through the guts. We say, you know, he has the guts to do anything. That's where that comes from. And, and the heart, where, where you have the very core of your being and everything that you hold of value and to be true and of most importance, that is the place where Christ wants to dwell in us. I was reading uh, an article by Paco Amador uh, just recently where he talks about Jesus' desire to not meet people at the office. 
but he wants to meet them in the most intimate settings of their lives. And that was, was not in the living room or the office at the, at the building, but it, it was in the dining room at the family meal. Jesus hardly resisted a dinner invitation to the point that he got the reputation in, Ma- in Matthew 11 and in Luke chapter 7 of being a drunkard and a glutton. He invited himself to the home of Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19 to have dinner. Now, I mean, we teach this to our kids, right? Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and Jesus sees him up in the sycamore tree. And what is it that he says? Zacchaeus, you come down for today. I'm, I'm going to go to your house and dine. I'm going to dine with you. I'm going to your house to dine with you. I mean, could you imagine that today? One of my favorite cooks, Chachi Ortega, when it comes to enchiladas. Can you imagine, and probably some of you can, if I went up to Chachi and I said, Chachi, get out of that pew, for today I'm going home to dine with you. Can you imagine? And for all of you, that's that's metaphorical and illustrative, but Chachi, hey, that's literal. (laughs) What is one of the last images of Christ we have in the Bible? It's Revelation chapter 3, it's verse 20. It's Christ, the picture of Christ at the door of our heart, hat in hand, and he's knocking on it, and he wants to come in so that we can eat with him and he can eat with us. Christ wants to be closer to us than the blood that's in our veins. But truth number two is, this intimacy with Christ is not something we achieve on our own. Now, over the years, we have heard couples describe their marriages, unfortunately, as being more like roommates, which, which means that one or both are not making themselves present and available to the other. There's a holding back. There's a hiding. There's the concealing of parts of life and, and parts of truths. And in the case of intimacy with Christ, sometimes we're more like roommates because we're the ones that are holding back. Ever since the Garden of Eden, what is it that we humans have been trying to do in the presence of God? Hide ourselves to cover up. And so in verse 16, Paul says, I pray this, that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his Spirit in your inner being. Paul prays that the Christians in Ephesus have an experience of the strengthening of their inner being, that is, their heart through God, through the Spirit, in order for Christ to settle more and more and more into the core of their being. Do you think that that's humanly possible? It is not. It is only done by the power of the Spirit in you. That's why Paul says, pray for it. You can't do it on your own. You remember the old Coke machines? I've I've told you this illustration a lot. In those old Coke machines, you needed a coin to access the drinks that are on the inside. Sometimes the coin would not go all the way to the bottom, to the core of the machine, and it needed a strength from the outside to move it or to shake it to get that coin to do what? To go all the way, to get that dime all the way down into the center of that thing. 
And one of the things that God the Spirit does is it comes into your life as that strength from the outside that helps the truth go to the very core. The point is, is that Christ makes himself available to your hearts and to my heart. Number two, the strength to grasp the truth. In verses 17 and 19, he says, I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. You know, one of the real dangers of becoming this data Christian is that you sleepwalk through gigantic mountains of electrifying truths. That word grasp that I just read is one of the real funny little words of the New Testament. What it means is basically that you're overtaking somebody and and you're grabbing a hold of them and you're subduing them. Do you know why he prays for strength to grasp the love of Christ? He tells us. Because that love surpasses knowledge. You hear people all the time talk about the love of Christ, the love of Christ, the love of Christ. But it hasn't gotten to the core of them. There are some truths that are so beyond us that Paul prays for disciples to have power to grasp these truths in such a way that they can never be taken away. In other words, Paul prays for Christians to be given Kawhi Leonard hands when it comes to these truths. But not just any truth, right? Not just any truth. He talks about a wide love. The love of Christ is wide enough to include every tribe and language and people and nation. It's wide enough to include you and me. And it's a truth about how long is the love of Christ. Christ died for you before the creation of the world, before you were born, before you were thought of, before you were given a name. The love that God has for you in Christ goes way back beyond that. Or how high The creator and the possessor of the heavens and the earth loves you. So high and holy is he. And deep. Meditate on the depth of his love that caused him to leave heaven and to become, you know, to lose that equality with God. Not something to be grasped but emptied himself and became a man, and not just a man, but a servant, and not just a servant, a servant who died, and not just any old death, but a death on the cross in order for you and me to know that kind of love, and not just for today, and not just for tomorrow, but for all of eternity. You know, for for a lot of us, we have experiences of love that at times really, really great, and at times really, really good, But there are times, there are gaps in that love sequence in which, in that chronology of love, that we sometimes don't feel very loved. We don't feel noticed. Do you know what it's like to be loved by the width and the length and the height and the depth of the creator of the universe? To know this love is to know something more real than any title, achievement, or status. 
And as your minister, I'm asking you and I'm begging you to let go of those things so that you can grasp the love of Christ. To know that kind of love and to know it profoundly because you're helped by God to know it, it begins to relativize all of the other loves in your heart. And when that happens, there's the opportunity for genuineness to be a true human being. Verse 19, to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. I'm going to speak about that in the the next lesson. It's in the next chapter as well. And I need to end this morning. But I want to end with a story from Erin Bunting. Uh, She picked up in the grocery store one day a bottle that said, blueberry, pomegranate, 100% juice, all natural. And there was a picture of a ripe pomegranate uh, you know, just spilling its exotic glistening seeds into a mound of fat and perfect blueberries. But when she began to read the ingredients list, it said filtered water, pear juice, concentrate, apple juice, concentrate, grape juice, concentrate. Where was the blueberry? Where was the pomegranate? She writes, finally I found them fifth and seventh on the list of nine ingredients after mysteriously unspecified natural flavors. According to this list, the jug in my hand held mostly water and other juices with just enough blueberry and just enough pomegranate for flavor and color. The enticing pictures and clever labeling were decoys to sell a diluted blueberry pomegranate flavored product. I left the store empty-handed and wondered What if I had an ingredients list printed on me? Would the Christ be the main ingredient? If not, how far down the list would his name appear? Would my label accurately represent my contents? Or would I falsely project a misleading outward appearance that cleverly marked diluted ingredients? And she ends with this question. Are we God-flavored or are we God-filled? I would argue, my friends, that the city of San Antonio, let alone our nation, let alone the world, doesn't need another God-flavored church, but a God-filled church. A God-filled church appears when Christians are filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Ben's going to lead us in a song right now, and we're going to have an opportunity to praise God. We're going to have an opportunity to sing to God about the height and the width and the depth and all of that, the love that we have experienced. It's also a time for us to decide to do better. It's a, it's a time for us to decide that, you know, I, I've been living as more God-flavored, Christ-flavored than Christ-filled as a disciple of His. And it's time to change that. Or it might be a time to, to, to get on board. A time for you to, to take those words of the gospel and in believing them to be true, to put your faith in Christ and not in anything else.
and to change the direction of your life and to decide that, that what happened on that cross and the resurrection three days later is, although it is mystery beyond mystery, it's true and it's for me and it's life-changing. And you have the opportunity for sins to be washed away in baptism and for God's Spirit to come and to live in you as a gift. And if that describes you this morning, we're going to have some of our shepherds down here at the front. While we're singing the song, we want you to come down and talk to these men and for the rest of us that stand and with hearts full of the love of God. Let us praise Him. Stand. Lord, let your light, light of your face, shine on us.